This is Marketing Trends, your number one source for exclusive interviews with chief marketing officers and executive marketing leaders in the Fortune 1000 and beyond. This is Jeremy Bergeron, and I interview, collaborate, and partner with world-class CMOs and marketing leaders across industries. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Marketing Trends. Super excited in the studio, the virtual studio with another epic marketing trailblazer. Let me tell you a little bit about Angela Stell, who is the chief marketing officer and head of customer experience for Sterling. Um, we'll get into Sterling and all that is, but I just want to give you a little insight into who we have in our midst today. We're talking about someone who is an award-winning marketing trailblazer, right? Un unmatched talent for spearheading data-fueled growth strategies that captivate audiences and drive revenue. We're talking about someone who has, you know, over the past 20 years led marketing innovation for a few prominent B2B powerhouses you may have heard of, uh, Verizon, Dun & Bradstreet, and, and now Sterling. Uh, she has really been behind devising some epic customer-centric campaigns, hence her passion for the customer, which we'll get into as well. Um, Angela's magic touch stems from this kind of potent blend of creativity, analytical rigor, and then a genuine warmth. We connected with her a couple of weeks ago on the prep call, and we're super excited to have her in, in, the, in the studio today. Angela, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I'm glad to be here. Yes, indeed. Now, as we talked about before, you're one of those marketing leaders who hasn't come out behind the curtain and done something like this in a while, right? This is your first one? This is my first podcast. Yeah. Okay. First podcast, which now now counts out of the bag. They're going to start contacting you and it's it's the tour might commence after this. So we're the first to, get, to get you in the seat. <laughs> um, I, something that stuck out to me about your your background and your title was your your path through the customer journey and being obsessed about the customer. I now see your title has customer experience in the title. Head of marketing, head of customer experience. Tell us what that means to kind of have those two distinct uh, pieces of what you do at Sterling. Yeah, I mean, I think it really has to do with where I came from into this role. Um, I started my career in marketing, was kind of in different roles in marketing throughout the first 15 or so years of my career. Then I kind of took a little bit of a turn into actually being chief of staff for the chief operating officer at Dun & Bradstreet. I did that for a few years, which was kind of a crazy job for me to take. I didn't really know what that was all about, but I took a risk on it and was really glad I did. And it kind of led me into the space of, you know, really there it was more about customer service, customer success, delivery, implementation. That's what I ended up getting into um, after I came out of the chief of staff role and led a team of about 500 people at Dun & Bradstreet to take care of the customer day to day. And that was a huge job because there's a huge customer base at DMB and there's a lot of work to, that went into that. And I really felt passionate about that kind of for the same reason I feel passionate about marketing, which is it's kind of all about people. It's all about the people you're trying to take care of, the people you're trying to reach, the people you're trying to give a sense of your company to, right? Like understand your brand, what you're all about. 
And so in customer experience, when I did that at DMB, that was what it was about. And then when I came into Sterling as chief marketing officer, originally I didn't have that as part of my responsibilities. I was originally coming in just to kind of whip the marketing team into shape and get a function going um, for B2B marketing at Sterling. It was kind of nascent at the point there. There had been a, you know a few, uh, a couple CMOs before me, but they really wanted to kind of you know elevate the function. And so that was my job coming in. And then it kind of made sense when there was some opportunity around customer service and customer experience to to kind of hook that into my marketing role. And that's how I got both the roles here. But like I said, at a high level, I think they're very similar roles. They're very mm-hmm. similar functions. They think about similar things. It's really all about thinking about kind of the journey of who you're trying to reach, whether that's a prospective buyer or a customer or an end user, and making sure you're kind of engineering your team and your um, plans to give them the best possible experience. So they ultimately want to buy from your company and stay with your company and build relationships with your company. Okay. I want to, I, I love this so much. And I, I got I to gotta go to, back to this point. You talked about chief of staff, right? So your chief mm-hmm. of staff at Dun & Bradstreet, your chief of staff supporting the COO of that business. Yeah. yeah. Lot, lot, I mean, lots of the direct reports, massive team, massive stuff. You're now, you know, as a chief of staff getting exposed to a lot, certainly on the operations side, but you chose this, you somehow ended up in customer experience, right? To me, mm-hmm. it's like you kind of had this you're probably looking across and seeing all kinds of interesting things as a chief of staff, which I, I love that experience for you being in that seat. What did you learn there? And what was it that kind of drew you towards the marketing side? Because I would imagine you probably could have gone operational. You could have done a few different things. What drew you to marketing? And how did that yeah, that chief of staff role really shape you? I love that. Yeah, I love talking about the chief of staff role because I think it's a bit of a mystery to a lot of people who... Yep don't know what it's all about. And that was actually my hesitation in even taking the job because I certainly didn't want to be the person who sat outside the executive's office and like took coffee orders. That was not yep. where I was in my career, what I wanted to be doing. But that's not at all what the role is or was. Um, and I work with Chiefs of Staff now at Sterling and um, you know love seeing them shine. So there's the two staff role I could talk about for the next hour probably, but I'll try to, I'll try to c- control myself on that. The reason I took the job um, of chief of staff was because it gave me this opportunity to sit within the executive team and actually was part, at that time, a new CEO had just come in. We were going through a transition as a company. They were defining a new company strategy. And it was just kind of an amazing opportunity to be part of all of that. But I will say on a more of a human level, I'll share that before I took that chief of staff job, I thought executives were like mythical beings who made like magical decisions and weren't afraid of anything. And I was actually super intimidated by executives. And then I developed this relationship with the chief operating officer at the company. And, you know, he he actually had marketing as part of his responsibilities. So oh, I worked within that it. team, okay. got to know him because I worked on a few special projects. I liked him um, and I, we kind of got along. And then he offered me this job. And at first I was like, why would I take this job? But then I realized, one, I'd be part of these amazing, you know, kind of decisions and company transitions at a, at a very high level. And two, I'd kind of overcome my, you know, mythicism around executives. And that's exactly what the role did for me. I would say at a high level, it really just gave me a sense of like executives are people too. They struggle with similar things as everybody else. They were really willing to take bigger risks 
bigger chances. Mm. And that's really what I observed in the role. Um, and that helped me to build the confidence to believe that I could also be one of those mythical beings and be human about it. And that's that's kind of at a human level what I took away from it. From a business and kind of functional perspective, my role as student staff is really to help, I thought, I felt, make my um, boss successful, mm-hmm. make his team successful. And so the other thing that did for me was kind of pull some of my ego out of um, my job. Because honestly, if you're going to be to a staff, you have to put your check your ego at the door because it's not about you. It's about everybody else. Um, so that was a big part of it. But coming back to the functional and business perspective, I did oversee with my boss a lot of different areas of the business, loved it, got kind of up to my elbows in business continuity and risk management and partners and alliances and product and operations. And there was just a ton of stuff that I was able to get, you know, kind of my hands dirty with, Um, did special projects, worked with a lot of different people. My heart just came back to marketing and customer experience. It's just where my heart is, honestly. I love the work. It's really interesting to me. It's very explorative in a way. There's a lot of like new horizons to explore around customer experience and marketing, in my opinion, in, you know, in like, like no other function really, because we're, we're just constantly learning in those spaces. And so that was really where I ended up kind of coming back to after I did that role. And then, you know, again, having the confidence, being able to check my ego at the door, having some of those learnings from doing that chief of staff role that allowed me, I think, to be successful in my next role. I love it. Would you, would you recommend that folks look at a chief of staff role of someone that wants to become an executive leader, would you think that that's a spot to to maybe explore? I do under the right circumstances. It's not a one size fits all job by any means. I also know people who are kind of career chiefs of staff and that mm. can be a whole career path in and of itself if you really love that type of work. And it depends a lot on the opportunity, the executive, what right. you're doing, if it's going to stretch you in the right directions, if it's really going to be something that you are going to get a lot of personal satisfaction out of working with that person. It's a very individual decision, but I think if the role is set up right with the right person, it can be a total game changer from a career perspective. There's only been, I think, one other, I'm, I'm just thinking about all the executives that I've interviewed. There's been only one that was the chief of staff. She was a chief of staff for Lisa Sue, who's the CEO for AMD. And it goes to the you're kind of what you're saying is is it matters a lot who you're who you're working with and the exposure you get, and I think like you and her as well, like you get exposed to someone that's really good, like you said, at taking risk, at being a human, at balancing. You know, I love how you said the mythical beast of you know being an executive, but seeing what that takes to do it well and having that mentorship and having that whoever that person is. It sounds like the person you were working with and you got exposed to some fantastic leadership. Just really cool. Yeah. And um, spoiler alert, it's the same person I work for now. So that's <laughs> that's the it. other thing about it is that okay. um, you know, if you do that job well and you build relationships within that job, I you know, I think it's just a great networking opportunity too. And wow. the relationship I built with the COO who, you know, I was chief of staff for, he's still my boss now. Um, and wow. we've built such a strong relationship that it's really, you know, been part of my progression since then, which is, you know, another another benefit of, of that kind of role. I love it. You've been at Sterling over four years now. 
you were part of the transition, kind of growing the function from a midsize through an IPO, right? Yep. Okay. So that that's also interesting as well, you know, in terms of looking at this, you know, growing that function of marketing from the midsize company to an IPO involves a pretty significant transformation, right? And so what are some of the insights, key strategies, challenges, if you will, on that journey of how it shaped, you know, Sterling's entire approach going from that midsize to an IPO? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll start with the company that I worked for before I came to Sterling, you know, was a large public company. Um, when I started working there down in Bradstreet, over $1 billion over public a billion. company. Yep. Yep. And then they actually went private right before I left. So I was part there of going from public to private and kind of experiencing that transition, which was really interesting, amazing learning experience. But then coming into Sterling, and again, I was kind of recruited in by somebody that I that I worked for prior at Dun & Bradstreet. He had left um, a year or two before you know I did. So uh, the last year or so at Dun & Bradstreet, um, I didn't work for him, but then he recruited me in as chief marketing officer. I came into Sterling you know, with that big company experience kind of under my belt and came into this company that, you know, mid-sized company, we were about 500 million at the time, private. You know, I compared it when I joined as like a, like a teenager who was still learning to use their legs. You know, it was like, there was some process in place. There were some like systems in place. We were kind of, you know, getting there, but everything felt a little a little bit less kind of structured than it felt like at, at DMB, right? So at first I, I was a little thrown off by that. But then what I also realized was that meant that we could do a lot more and mm. get a lot more done. There was a fair amount of, you know, red tape, I'll call it, at, at DMB. And there was a lot of, sure. you know, it was a very tightly run financial company. And and not that Sterling wasn't, it, it had it had financial structure in place. But from a go-to-market and marketing perspective, it was like greenfield. I mean, it was incredible. And I could, you know, really influence change and do do different things there that I couldn't, I didn't really feel quite as free to do at the last company I was at. So that felt great. So I really started to like build the team and, you know, figure out the the campaigns to put in place and the, how to build the function. It was really great, you know, great first kind of six months or so there. Then COVID hit. So I, I can't not mention that because that was a big, you know, kind of pivot point in and of itself. I was in in the role for about six months when that happened. And so then we went. So by the way, I was commuting back and forth to New York City from New Jersey. Wow. So I had like this crazy commute. I was in the office every day. There was a whole energy to it. I was building a team, building a function. COVID hit, we're all home. And just, you know, around that same time, we started to contemplate an IPO. So... There was a lot of different things to manage there. One being how to keep the momentum that we had built those first six months in a pandemic and a work from home environment. So that was a whole thing to navigate. And two, you know, starting to figure out how to move towards an IPO. And so it was a really exciting time. I think the good news about how it worked out for me is that I had already hired in some really great talent within the marketing team and I had inherited some great talent. So I had a really good team in place 
And so when I started to work on the IPO, I could kind of shift my attention to that because I had some, you know, some team in place that I, they were, they were running the business day to day for the most part mm. um, with some guidance for me. Um, but, you know, but I was able to really focus a lot on the IPO and there was just a ton of work that went into the IPO. I loved that experience. It was amazing as a marketer, partly because it is in large part a marketing effort to do an IPO. Right. Okay. You are marketing the company to investors. You are basically saying, here's why this company is so great and why, you know, you should want to invest and why you should want to kind of support the the IPO. So there was a ton of storytelling and company positioning and we developed a whole bunch of videos and, you know, did the roadshow video and it, it really creative, but also really strategic. And how do we bring the story of this company together in a way that is going to resonate with investors? So it was quite an experience. I think just building up a, a mid-sized company, and we were seeing a lot of growth um, in that time. Pandemic kind of, you know, hit us a little bit on that, but we we did see, um, you know, significant growth during that time period. But also just figuring out how to position the company to have a successful IPO, um, which we were able to do in 2021. Building that high-performing team at the time that you're beginning to build it. You know, it, it's interesting because it's it's got it's it's so important. It, having a great team is a cornerstone of you know any success, certainly in the marketing function. So, what kind of strategies or just approach do you have to assemble you know this this powerhouse of marketing of marketers that you're hiring to drive growth? Or what are you what are you drawing from to yeah to to really find people, bring them on, onboard them rapidly, find the right fit for where the business is, and also where you're about to take the business? Walk us through some of that. One, I did inherit you know a team, so I came in and there was a team there. Okay. So I think first and foremost, it's assessing what you've got mm -hmm. um, and finding those kind of gems in the existing team and putting them in the right places. So that was a big part of it. It's worth sharing something that's a little bit detail-y about Sterling in that we have a model for marketing where there's a centralized corporate marketing team, and then there are marketers and business units who kind of dotted line into marketing, but solid yeah. line into their heads of business units. And so that was an interesting model to step into because our biggest challenge by far when I stepped into the role was we were just doing way too much across way too many people, or sorry, way too few people. And it was like a street fight every day just wow. to get stuff done. Like you had like, you know, marketers and all these business units saying, I need this, I need this, I need this. And you had, you know, the centralized marketing group saying, there's no way I can do all this, which by the way, is, is kind of a shared service function as well as doing corporate marketing. So it was a bit messy. I had to assess what was there decide if that was the right structure. I ultimately did decide that was the right structure for this business. And I think it's it's played out well as we've refined it. Um, but then also decide where did I have talent? Where did I not have talent? Mm. And then start to fill some of those gaps. I think in hiring, um, it's one of my favorite things to do, quite honestly. I love talking to talented people that are out there and kind of assessing and seeing. I think you can find a really talented person Ideally, they need to have passion for what they do and be super yeah, confident. Yeah. I mean, those are like the, the basic building blocks, but they also have to fill a, a gap you have on the team and fit with the culture. I think teams that work well together are very different people who kind of come together and like are like pieces of a puzzle that all of a sudden the picture comes together once you have the right people in place. So yeah, just kind of getting out there with the right job descriptions and then meeting with the the right people and starting to assess. 
you know, I didn't always get it right. You know, there are a few people I brought in that didn't quite work out. Uh, but at the end of the day, we did kind of get to a team that had some super talented people in the right spots and then worked really well with what was there. Um, and I would say the number one kind of soft skill I looked for was collaboration. Mm. Because in a matrix marketing model, you've got to have good collaboration. You can't have people who are just going to be sharp elbows bumping into each other. So it's taken us some time, I think, to get to the point where we have a team of like really good collaborators who are super smart and talented and creative. But I actually think we kind of have a rock star team now. Um, but it's it's taken a little while to build. and And I think it's a mix of people who were there before I got there who mm-hmm. have grown in their careers since I've been there and people who came in new and brought some fresh eyes and fresh blood. Awesome. I love that. You took on the marketing leader function. You've now taken on client experience, which I, again, it's so, so interesting. Now you're looking even more holistically at this business from driving growth from a marketing perspective and then retaining and ensuring that your customers have an awesome experience as customers and become advocates and all the amazing things. How... How do you ensure that marketing and CX are aligned? Like, how do you ensure that collaboration is happening? So I want to qualify my CX role. And it's true when when I did it down at Bradstreet, it's true here. I, I love the CX kind of strategy aspects and doing journey mapping and, you know, human-centered design. And I've really, I've nerded out on all of that. I, I love it all. I have found that there's like, this much of that that is super helpful in day to day. And then there's a whole bunch of tactical stuff that you need to think about. And so I don't actually think about like, how do I bring CX and marketing together? I think about how do I ensure marketing is thinking about the customer all the time and not just the prospect, but also how's that going to play with the customer and thinking about campaigns for for customer as well as prospect, et cetera, and just having a customer centric mindset. And then on the other side of the house that I manage, which is more basically customer service, like really making sure that we have the right metrics, the right you know team, the right mentality around taking care of the customer day to day, that we're looking at the right things, that we're managing escalations in the right way, that we're partnering well with our product team and uh, you know other functions within the business. Um, we've done some journey mapping at Sterling. I think it has been helpful. But I think what's really more impactful to me is just the operational day-to-day, like paying attention to it and having the teams like ingrained with a mindset of it's actually a, a value of ours at Sterling, the customer is always in the room. Um, and just mm. thinking about that all the time in everything you do, go outside of the internal think and like bring that into the conversation to me, that's really like, that's how I embrace client experience. I love all the strategic stuff. I love all the tools and frameworks. I think they're awesome and they make me happy. But I think as far as success in the business, it's really about that day-to-day mindset and that day-to-day operational kind of way to work that makes sure the customer is always in the room. I love that. It's like you ask that question, you bring that question into any conversation internally. And that's like a, a paradigm shift right there. Like, you know, because like you said, it could be insider baseball sometime or or in this silo and it's going to be this way. We've always done it this way. And then you ask that question, well, what if the customer was in the room? Like, and then it's like, oh, that causes pause. It causes reflection. It causes, okay, wait a second. Let us zoom out perhaps and take, take in more. Um, really interesting 
what, what are there any things around like best practices or strategies that you you have seen work well that keep the voice of the customer top of mind like across the org? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of which ones to highlight. I mean, again, I think journey mapping is a great tool and strategy, even just from a um, philosophical point of view. Like, I think it can be great for uncovering pain points and you know action plans, and that that's that's a great output of a journey map. But also, it, it, it again forces that mentality of customer in the room, pretend like you're the customer, go through this process. It really um, is more of a mindset thing to, to, to do journey mapping in, in my view. So I think that's an effective tool when, when used right and when you, know, you bring the right people into it. I think you know, just setting the right KPIs, you know, it's maybe kind of basic, but I always push us on our KPIs to make sure that they are customer centric. And not just us kind of navel gazing and saying like, well, we really just want to, you know, hit each of these numbers and, but not really thinking about, does that actually move needles for the customer, for the prospect? It's one of the things I love actually about both marketing and customer experience is that it really should and can be data driven, but the data is actually people. So when you look at numbers of leads or numbers of, you know, or average handle time in, you know, the customer service environment, those are people and conversations. So I think just setting the right KPIs, but also ensuring that you're not just thinking of them, of them as numbers to hit, but you're actually being conscious that that's actually people who are interested or, mm-hmm. you know, conversations that are being had. So it's that mix of like KPIs with, what they actually mean and are they actually externally relevant and impactful. So those are a couple of things I would call out. In terms of the KPIs and things, is it is it easier now to kind of align customer experience metrics with, you know, with what marketing is typically accountable for? What does that look like in terms of like, okay, this is the scoreboard that we're that we're headed towards now, taking into account not just marketing, but also customer experience. Are there different, have you reprioritized or are there other metrics you're looking at now that are different as opposed to maybe just being the marketing leader and just focusing on growth or churn, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I think like at a high level, I think there's like a Venn diagram between the two sets of metrics, right? And there's like a nice sweet spot overlap in the middle because a lot of what marketing has to do, you know, in typically and certainly, you know, in, where I work is is around the new business, you know, kind of metric, sure. the new business, you know, pipeline and leads and, you know, marketing influence and all of those things, which, you know, is really more focused on the prospect and buyer journey. And that's, that's necessary, right? And then there's like a percentage of metrics you could look at or should look at, I think, around, you know, upsell, cross-sell, retention, customer impact. And so then on the customer experience side of the house, there's a lot to look at in my mind, you know, and the way that I think about it operationally around what's actually happening with the customer day to day and like, how are we measuring that? And then there's this nice little sweet spot in the middle where it overlaps with marketing, where it is around, you know, upsell, cross-sell or engagement metrics, et cetera, that, that it overlaps. So I think it's, it's kind of has to be both. You don't kind of bring it all together. I think there's some nice overlap between the two. And again, I think it's really about how do you maintain the focus across those areas. It's hard. Mm-hmm. I will say that it's difficult sometimes to carve out marketing mindshare for customer marketing because there's so much to do in the new business space. And honestly, it's really important stuff to do, right? I don't want to take away from it. 
it's just maintaining that balance in in that overlap. And you have, I mean, is it over fifty thousand customers? Is, is that accurate? There's like, oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about you know, mass, a huge customer and growing base, and you're also talking about Sterling serving at least, I think it was like twenty different industries, right? I mean, at least that yeah. many, if not right around there. So you have a lot of depth and breadth across a lot of industries who are leveraging what Sterling's providing. Um, that's got to give you interesting insight too. Being, you know, having customer experience be very important here. What is what is having access to all of that information and data, right? To to make a better experience for the customer, to be ahead of where customers are going. So when they interact with Sterling now, at any point in the journey, they have this memorable experience. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to claim that we've cracked the code on that because that that's that that would be a magical place to be. But what I'll say is that. The industry orientation within Sterling is really strong and really does deliver what it needs to related to like a very relevant personalized experience. I'm responsible for aspects of that, but certainly not all of it. We have industry specific client success teams, sales sure. teams. There's a whole go to market around that that I influence and, and touch in some ways, but is is I have to give credit where credit is due. They really manage that. The part that I feel very responsible for is... How do you scale that? Because in my functions, you can't be successful if you're doing one-to-one communications. It's just, it's not the recipe for success. You can do that in some of our industry-specific teams because that is how we're structured. Then there becomes this, this challenge of what is the overarching experience? How do you drive that? How do you scale all that great insight and expertise and bring it to the masses? And that's really what you know. My marketing team focuses on is taking kind of all those those insights and those relationships that exist within the organization from an industry perspective, and then figuring out how to amplify the messaging from those, how to bring insights to the market related to that, and how to scale it through you know programmatically, right? Through ways that we can deliver that message to, you know, to multi, you know, many, many people, not just the one person that's engaging um, with our with our industry specific teams. Um, that's really what I spent a lot of time thinking about. And I think it's that kind of combination that allows us to be successful with, as you say, 50,000 clients. Um, a lot of the clients that that my team ends up kind of touching and working with are the long tail of clients mm. who need to feel like they are engaging with a company that cares about them, but they're not going to necessarily get that one-to-one experience. And so that's the challenge that we face. Okay. Such a vast customer base, again, across a lot of different industries and supporting them in a really critical part of their business as well. We talked a little bit about this. You mentioned this on the prep call. I want to I want to click into this a bit before we... Gosh, time is going way too fast, Angela. Dang it. <laughs> um, I want to touch on ABM. I want to touch on ABM. I think that's a really interesting, especially now. Gosh, the the strategies, the tools, the tactics, there's lots of ways, I think, to take it. But um, can you kind of double click into some of the, yeah, the things you're learning about your success at ABM? How has ABM really impacted Sterling's growth and, and customer engagement? Yeah, I mean... I feel like I could be a broken record about this, but I feel like ABM is yet another way to bring the customer into the room because first and foremost, to have a successful ABM program, you have to know who you're trying to reach and really get clear on it and document it and be specific um, from an ICP perspective, 
ideal customer profile. Just I, I hate using acronyms and not defining them because it sounds like a secret language um, for people who don't who are in it every day. So ideal customer profiles, like really understanding the who in it, and I think that's been just a really strong exercise. So so just to step back a bit. When I came into the company, we were doing quote unquote ABM. There were marketers who were doing it, which was basically sending really nice direct mail pieces to very specific people. Um, okay. You know, they'd be like, okay, these are our top 20 people and we're going to send them something really nice in the mail, which is great. You know, like that's a great thing to do. But there wasn't necessarily like a multiple touch point strategy. It was like, we'll send them this thing and then hopefully they'll respond and then sales will talk to them. And that was kind of what we called ABM, you know, four ish years ago. Since then, we've gotten like much, I, th- I think, much more advanced in it, which many companies have. We're much more digital. Uh, that was a whole, that was actually the the biggest evolution we made in general was moving from more kind of event sales tactic uh, marketing to more digital marketing. And so in that, in leaning into ABM, we brought on a tool called Sixth Sense. Some listeners might know about it. Kind of knocked my socks off when Sixth Sense did their their demo for us because they have a ton of intent data um, in their system. It's incredible. So basically, they're tracking you know, what people are searching. Are they searching for your competitor keywords? Are they searching for keywords that you want? And they serve up these audiences of people who are showing intent um, to, to be interested in buying. So when you cross-reference that with your ideal customer profile, where you now have okay, here's who I want to go after and here's who's like showing intent. And then you have, you can kind of pull in the people that overlap between those two things. And then you can give them an experience, you know, from an ads perspective, from a content perspective, you know, presenting them with interesting content that they want to um, consume and then pulling them through to ultimately wanting to have a sales conversation. You know, that's kind of at a high level, the, the process that we've got in place now. I think the next stage for us is really getting that sales and marketing right hand, left hand um, mm-hmm. thing down. We have a really great sales team and um, they love working with us. And I realize I'm a lucky marketer to say that because I talk to a lot of marketers who do not say that about their sales right, teams. Right. So I have a great leg up on you know having a really good sales marketing working relationship. But to move into this next stage of ABM, that's really what we need to focus on is making sure that the touch points marketing's driving are kind of pulled through by the sales touch points and that there's kind of multi-threaded uh, marketing and sales going on. That's kind of the next horizon for us. But right now what we have going for us is we have really good clarity on who we want to reach. Mm-hmm. We are being successful in reaching them through the tools and the data that we have. Um, and we're seeing good engagement and, and kind of lead generation. But we're, we're looking to evolve that year. That's super interesting. Yeah. Um, intent data, especially as I think as, 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 as time evolves and we continue to move so rapidly in, you know, weaving AI, right. With predictive analytics and intent data, uh, to engage some of these target accounts in really meaningful, like elegant ways. I'm, I'm paying attention to that space. Fascinating. As you talk about the multiple kind of touch point piece, which is super interesting. Can you give us maybe an example of how yeah, like how you're doing that in terms of, you know, you're getting this intent data, then you have various ways to start to engage with them through a multi-touch, you know, strategy, if you will. Can you, can you share what maybe example of what that might look like? Yeah, sure. And again, I'm going to caveat, we're not perfect at it, um, but we work at it uh, pretty hard. And we, 
a lot of it is in the planning. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think my head of digital marketing, who's awesome, he he coined the term within our team. And then what? And then what? So you know, people would say, "Well, I'm going to you know run this ad." He'd say, "And then what?" You know, ah, and so okay. we're we're all about the and then what. And so mapping that out is really important. We use a tool called Funalytics to map mm. out our touch points and make sure that we have a plan for not just like we're going to place this ad and it's going to reach this person, but then what? Then what are they going to do? Then what, what do I want them to see next? And so there's a lot of that mapping that goes on. You know, to share like a real life example, you know, we're, we're actually healthcare is a really big target industry for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we have some pretty good successful ABM campaigns going in healthcare. And it's really just mapping out kind of, okay, we want to identify this particular type of buyer that we're going after. We want them to see this ad. We want them to click on that this ad and then see this piece of content. Then we want them to you know engage with this nurture campaign that we've set up in this way. And it's just mapping cool. them all out and then measuring and seeing what's working. You know, like I said, we're not perfect at it. We're still kind of building some of that um, discipline and, and focus, but... I think that there are just the practice of putting the plans in place. And again, thinking about what is that experience going to feel like for the person on the other side of it? Let's make sure that it, you know, designing it to feel a certain way and that then we're measuring against it to make sure that it is actually playing out that way. Um, And that's just really the mindset and the practice. Is AI being woven into any of the ABM stuff yet or? So, you know, AI is really interesting to me. Here's what I'm going to say about AI, and maybe it's like sacrilege or something to say this. I'm interested in AI use cases. My team mm-hmm. is looking into AI use cases for things like content generation sure, and some other things. But, you know, I think there's a lot of hype around AI. I, I think AI can be helpful in certain scenarios where there's high amount of effort that could be done better, you know, with with data analysis, and it can you can generate you know a, a better result than having people put a lot of effort into it. And at a high level, I think that sounds great. Um, in the reality, I I personally have yet to see where you know there's an AI use case that is like changing the game for how we're working. Mm. I hear this from other people. I I think it exists. Maybe I just haven't stumbled upon it yet. We talk about it a lot. We look at a lot of use cases. We use tools that you know use AI. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of it being used in the background that I'm not even fully like aware of in the tools that we use. But you know, it's not something that I'm like thinking about a lot. I'll put it that yeah. way. It's just it's something that I think is a useful tool in the tool belt, and we should use it where it makes sense. But I think it's a bit overhyped right now. Are you using any kind of AI just in like your day-to-day, like are you using ChatGPT or Claude or some of these just tools like as an executive to help you with anything from emailing, responding to things, building out use cases? Like are you as as head of marketing and head of kind of customer experience using AI in your day-to-day? I'm not. Okay. To be fully honest, I am not. I have heard people using ChatGPT to like generate an email and then edit it. Sounds interesting to me. Yep. It's just not like something that like I felt compelled to start doing. Okay. So I'll be I an see. outlier on that maybe, but yeah. it's just not, it's not my thing right now. Like you said, the hype is certainly everywhere and it's, it's easy to find, you know, someone talking about it everywhere you look. It's, there's been many moments where if you historically 
just look at what's happening with it's like that's everywhere. Yes. And to hear you like someone who has been actually doing this right on the front lines, you know, from with a, with an awesome supporting cast and team, you know, doing this in a very fast moving space, serving a lot of industries in a very big way. Um, because like what you're seeing is results and you're of course paying attention to it, but it's like, again, I'd like to hear you say, Hey, look, like I'm observing, but I'm not day to day using chat GPT. That's super interesting. Super interesting. So I don't know how interesting it is. I'm just being honest. And I, and I think, you know, I find the AI conversation interesting in that. I think there's a lot of like, there's a lot of stuff there and I'm observing it, like you said, but I'm also you know, I'm kind of waiting for it to hit in a way that feels like, wow, that's a really interesting opportunity. That's going to change the game for my team. Yeah, let's do that. Right. There's like quarter cases right now that I think are kind of interesting. And again, we're kind of playing with a little bit, but it hasn't it hasn't hit me yet in a way that that feels like a game changer. Got in, it. In full oh. honesty. Yeah. No, that's that's so so interesting. So as you kind of look out, take us, you know, in final kind of thoughts here, just what you see across the landscape that you're serving, right? What are you excited about coming down the pipeline? What do you think a future, you know, is holding for, for Sterling, for where you're going? Um, yeah, just kind of give us your thoughts about where we, where you think this thing is headed. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm not going to repeat any of the things we've already talked about. I'll, I'll go in a different direction with that. I think, you know, our big focus as we're planning for next year right now at a high level is storytelling, Mm. Um, and becoming and going back to, I think, some of the roots that I think marketing grows from, which is storytelling. But I feel like we have to get back to telling really good stories. And I think that that is easy to get distracted from, oddly. I mean, even just the conversation we're just having around AI, like to me, that's a shiny object kind of thing that is that can be very valuable and I hear is very valuable. And that's great. But for me, like at my core, I love marketing that tells good stories. I love marketing that's human and emotional and relatable and that people want to like hear that story, right? And they want to hear more about that story. And I think in B2B marketing in particular, which is my game, okay. it's it's very easy to forget that we're supposed to tell stories. It's very easy to just think that we're supposed to like deliver these very tactical things and move things along a, a journey. And we, of course, think about messaging and content, but we don't necessarily think about how that all tells a story mm-hmm. or multiple stories or, you know, changes a mindset on something. Like that's the power of marketing. And we do a little bit of it today. Again, I think we've been doing a lot of work to build kind of the engine of marketing. And that's been really important in in my role here. We have a pretty good engine built now. Now I'm really interested in how we're going to tell stories that feed that engine and do that and, and dial that way up. So that's that's where I'm going next. I love it. And that's also a testament to right back to just your focus in your role, which is the customer and the experience of the customer. You know, we hear, have a lot of marketers that talk about the importance of that. And yes, it's true. But I see how you kind of, you're, you're, it's the art and the science you're balancing of, yes, of course, we're driving growth. Of course, we're going to get more market share. And let's not forget the customer. Imagine the customers in the room. Imagine it from their experience. And so you're always bringing it back to that piece. And then the story, like humans receiving information in a really compelling way. How do we keep that on the table, right? As table stakes, as the world's changing so rapidly. Yeah. So, And can I say one more thing on that? Yeah, absolutely. 
it's for sure about the customer and how we tell stories, you know, that are relevant to our customers and our buyers, but it's also internally how we tell stories. Mm-hmm. You know, data-driven marketing, I love it. It's like, you know, something that I live and breathe. But unless you're telling stories about that data internally, nobody cares. Nobody cares about marketing metrics unless you're telling what story does that tell? What's actually happening? What's engaging people? So we're thinking about it both internally facing and externally facing of just being better storytellers about what marketing's doing, what's happening with marketing, what's the number tell, what are the numbers telling us, doing that internally, but of course then also the external story that we want to tell. What's an example of like how you'll tell that story internally? Is that done through various channels or like when I love this, like what's one way that you are telling the story to the internal folks? How is that being done? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll go back to ABM as an example, right? We have a lot of data around ABM, right? And we have a lot of like kind of examples and, you know, leads that are coming in. It's worth, you know, this amount of money. And, you know, so there's a lot of data opportunities related to ABM, especially as we're, we're still in the mode of, you know, building an ABM discipline. So you have to kind of, you know, tell that story to, to others. And a lot of that story does become like a numbers story. Well, mm. we generated this lead for $500,000 and now it's here. Great. Yay. You know, everybody gets very excited like that. that, And that's great. But what is the story? The story is we tried to reach this head of HR at a hospital with this particular ad copy. And she responded because it really resonated with her when, when we showed her this graph. And then she downloaded this piece of content because she's trying to figure out how to do this part of her job better. And this content was going to help her to figure that out. That's way more interesting than, hey, we just got a $500,000 lead. Isn't that awesome? You know, Mm. so really under like helping our internal constituents and and even ourselves, honestly, reminding ourselves to pay attention to the why behind it. Like, why did this number happen? What was the story that led to that? And I think if we can get better at that, which which we're working on, I think marketing becomes much more compelling and interesting than just saying, here's all, some, all these great numbers and we've hit all of our targets and isn't that great, good for us, right? Wow. Like what it, why, why do we hit those targets? What happened yep. that allowed that to happen? And those are the types of stories that, that I wanted to tell more internally. I love it. And I'm also seeing why you're able to solidify your seat on any bus that you're on. I mean, that's incredible because again, you have this, this perspective on, from both sides, it's phenomenal. Um, this has been exceptional, Angela. This happened again where we need more time with people like you because you're up to really cool things and it's shaping where business is heading. It's shaping the customer experience in big, big ways. So thank you for being a part of Marketing Trends. We are so stoked to have you and we're definitely paying attention to Sterling as things proceed because there's a lot happening at that brand. So congratulations to you and the team there. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. It was fun to talk to you. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies 
to create unforgettable brand experiences so you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.